Welcome back to the Good News Podcast. My name is Ayebele, and I'm a pastor at St. Paul's Free Methodist Church in Greenville, Illinois. I'm currently going through the ordination process, and one of the great gifts that the church has given me uh, is the opportunity to be a part of their rotating pulpit. The message that you're about to hear has been pre-recorded, but whether you heard it live uh, or long after it's been uploaded, I believe that the Holy Spirit is present. I hope you enjoy, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts and feedback uh, and comments. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, o Lord. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David by the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord will said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise Praise you, Lord. Please be seated. This Sunday, uh, during Sunday school um, in seminary with Ayebele, I shared a paper that I, uh, I got to write for one of my classes. And the assignment was really to wrestle with the incarnation of uh, Jesus Christ as God's image uh, vision for humanity. What does it mean for us that God was both fully human and, or Jesus was fully human and fully divine uh, for us who are fully human but not divine? And so this was written a couple weeks ago and I employed part of today's gospel reading in my uh, reflection, though I did not know that I would be preaching on it this morning. And in my uh, reflection, I say that Jesus in Matthew 22 Uh, perfectly connects the law recorded in the Hebrew Bible to the fulfillment of the good news uh, that he brings uh, to the world. Matthew's gospel begins with Jesus's lineage, and it's real easy to skim past, especially if you're familiar with some of the names. And for some of the names that you're not familiar with, maybe you skim over them even faster. As we go from Abraham to Jesus, And many of us affirm Jesus as the descendant of David, as is expected of the Messiah. Yet if you brush past the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, the gospel does not let you forget it. You have to address it time and time again. And so the constant theme throughout this gospel uh, is that Jesus is the son of David, that he is connected to Abraham. And one of the places that it's addressed most explicitly is in today's reading. And so uh, by the time that Jesus asked this question to the Pharisees, what do you think of the Messiah? Who do you think he is or whose son, who, um, whose son do you think he is? Jesus has been involved in a long series of disputes by this point with scribes, with Pharisees, with the Sadducees, lawyers and their respective disciples. And so in Matthew chapter 22 alone, Jesus has already had the parable of the wedding banquet. He's already answered questions about paying taxes 
Is it, is it uh, lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus addresses the resurrection, and now we find Jesus talking about which of the commandments is the greatest. And as Jesus asks the Pharisees this question concerning the Messiah, they answer accurately, but not adequately. They get uh, a part of it right, but not the whole truth. That the Messiah is the son of David, yet there's still something to wrestle with. If the Messiah is the son of David, then how on earth does David call the Messiah the Lord? As the Lord said to my Lord, And so he's quoting a psalm that the NRSV titles Assurance of Victory for God's Priest King. This riddle seems to be a yes and rather than an either or for us who stand on this side of history and this side of the resurrection. And Matthew's gospel depicts Jesus as both David's son, the son of David and David's Lord being completely human and completely divine. This text is entrenched with conflicts which arise from the varying interpretations of the day. You hear it. The Pharisees have this interpretation and the Sadducees have this interpretation and the scribes have another interpretation of what it means for God to be saving the world. But before we can even begin to address how Jesus answers this question or how he arrives at this question, let's pay attention to the why as well. Because we also know all too well how varying interpretations manifest themselves in some sort of division and brokenness and conflict that often does not lead to new life. But what Jesus is doing here as he answers these questions is he's doing much more than just defeating the religious leaders and proving them wrong. This is not just a battle of interpretations and intellect or knowledge of what God is doing and how God is going to save the world. Jesus is trying to reveal himself to these people in ways that they might be missing, that they might be like trees planted by streams of water, which in due season, they will yield their fruit. And so often we place an emphasis on getting this God thing right. Let's make sure that we have the best theology or the best understanding of what it means to be human, what it means uh, to follow God, and what it means for Jesus to be both human and divine. We fixate on perhaps unhelpful things. I won't won't call them entirely wrong, but at times unhelpful. Happy are those who don't spend their life seeking the one correct answer, but rather their delight is in the mysteries of God, not to be fully uh, exposed or or solved, but rather uh, instead experienced. Meditating on God's word day and night, on God's good news day and night. And so this lawyer approaches Jesus with a question. There has to be one right answer. What is the greatest commandment, the goat, if you will. And Jesus, uh, and it may seem contentious as a, as a trick question, as the text states, but this is coming from someone who's professionally trained, a lawyer, in matters of the law. This is a professional theologian, if you will, and Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned with a win and a loss column as we might be. You got to choose one out of the 613 laws Which would you say is the greatest? We find ourselves in this predicament time and time again. 
Frequently, we too ask this question, maybe not to trap Jesus and, and say that he has the wrong answer, but we desperately ask, am I doing this thing right? Am I following God right? Am I being the best human? If not, how do I get on the right path? Jesus, what do you say the greatest commandment is? And Jesus sort of finesses the limit set forth by the question as he quotes part of their daily prayer, the Shema Yisrael. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. It seems that this lawyer was praying every single day, at least part of the answer, right before him every single day. And then he goes on to quote part of our first lesson today in Leviticus 19. Then the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. Now, what a bold bold claim, because what on earth is love supposed to look like? The world in which we live, agape, this divine and complete and whole love, does not seem to be a mode of operation in this world that we live in. And if we pay attention to our history, the history of the church, agape doesn't seem to be the mode of operation in our history. To love and to be loved unconditionally is our greatest desire. It is woven into the very fabric of our existence. And we feel it from the moment that we are conceived until the moment that we die, we desire to experience a love which knows no bounds, a love which does not end, a love which is everlasting. And this is not a fabricated need that comes with some sort of maturity, but rather in every context, every human being requires love to exist and to exist well. Yet unfortunately, we also understand how conditional love can often be, how abstract this idea or this concept of love can be. So I want to offer a bit of a trigger warning for violence and self-harm. As yesterday, the New York Times reported the death of 40-year-old Robert R. Card II, who had legally purchased guns and uh, carried out a mass shooting in the small city of Lewiston, Maine. He left 18 dead and 13 people injured. So what would love look like for Robert if he was still here today? What does love look like for the victims and their families, those who are left behind to, to, to grieve and to work through all of the destruction that happened on the day that uh, Robert eventually kills himself? Do we prioritize love for the gunmen or do we prioritize love for the victims and their families? And I'm not sure that it would be a stretch to say we're as polarized as ever. We've been praying for Israel and Palestine for a few weeks now, and there seems to be a pressure, at least maybe I I see the pressure on social media everywhere, that there is a side to choose. Who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed? And therefore, we must do something about it by choosing a side. And for me to stand before you today with this proclamation that we should love both the victim and the perpetrator, or that we should love both the oppressor and the oppressed. It sounds like something really, really, really uh, controversial. Sounds like something really, really, really reckless. Yet I feel like I'm repeating what I see Jesus saying in today's gospel reading. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor whom you do not get to choose as yourself. Jesus was not talking about a suburban neighborhood. You shall love your neighbor, whomever that might be, whether they're good or bad or in between. And as we're uncomfortable with this idea of loving someone who's capable of inflicting so much pain and suffering and destruction on real people with real lives, then it reveals to us that we also understand love to be a bit formulaic, that love looks the same in each way. And often we follow the path of least resistance. Who is the easiest person for me to love? Those are my, my friends and my family members. Sometimes maybe those are the hardest to love as well. But love for the perpetrator and love for the victim do not look the same. In Leviticus, we read that love sometimes looks like reproving. Yet love also sometimes looks like healing. The love that Jesus is talking about is not just physical touch or, or words of affirmation. It's not even about admiring or liking somebody, but rather it is a commitment. Love is a commitment. It's not some sort of everything goes mentality where we just say, you exist as you are, I exist as I am, and then we just be okay with all of that. But rather a radical commitment to a right relationship between the oppressor and the oppressed in which reconciliation is needed. This love that Jesus speaks of is not just passive or it's not just emotional, but rather it's intentional. It's impossible to love as Jesus is calling us to love on accident. Perhaps our commitment to love expands. And as we continue to make this a habit to respond in love and to respond with care, maybe we get used to the rhythms, but it's always going to be difficult to love because to love well requires an intimate and a vulnerable connection in which you just might get hurt. In which the oppressor might remain the oppressor or the oppressed might remain the oppressed. And so this vulnerability is the thing that is dangerous about this call to love. It's one that fosters, so this uh, to love well requires uh, us to foster a safe space for our sacred stories to be shared and responded to. But they have to be responded to in a way that doesn't hinder Christ's healing and what God desires for this world. So we find ourselves not wanting to love whoever we consider to be the worst of the worst. And it's more convenient for us to embrace things like, let's say, incarceration or capital punishment as if these are the only responses of, uh, to, to crime. It's much harder for us to do that than it is for us to love as deeply as Jesus calls us. It's easier for us to cancel someone who says or does problematic things, ostracizing them via shame as if this is the only way or the best way to hold someone accountable. It's easier for us to do that than it is for us to love as deeply as Jesus is calling us to. The good news of Jesus Christ puts us in grave danger. It always has and it always will because of this vulnerability that's required to love well. The call to love is in itself the greatest risk that we ever take. And as a society, we have not been trained to love well. We have been trained to see other people as just that, other people. 
But on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets, the law which requires righteousness as an expression of commitment to God's will, and the prophets which demand justice for the people on the margins. The two are so deeply intertwined and intermingled with each other that one cannot exist without the other. You cannot have righteousness without justice, and justice cannot take place if it's divorced of righteousness. In essence, being in right relationship with the divine and being in right relationship with human beings and the rest of creation is the call of love. That righteousness and justice is the entire law. That is what Jesus is telling this lawyer, at least from my interpretation. Jesus is given one choice. Pick the greatest commandment of them all. And what a struggle it is to love an intangible God. Lord, where are you in the midst of all of this chaos? In all of my chaos, where are you? Why don't you step in like you used to in the good book and and speak audibly or do something to put an end to this suffering that we go through or that I'm going through? If you love me or if you love us, where is that displayed in my day-to-day life? Even when we know cognitively, even when we understand that we are loved, we still desperately need to feel loved and to experience love. What a struggle it is to love our neighbor, especially in times that they are hurting and they require so much of us, so much of our time, so much of our talent, so much of our treasure. And in our neighbor's pain, they are capable of uh, inflicting us with so much pain and suffering, not only on us, but on those that we love and care about. And we can tell our neighbor that we love them all we want, but a cognitive knowledge that we are loved is not enough. To hear the words that you are loved often requires something much more, a follow-up, because it pales in comparison to any experience of love to any time that you have felt genuine love. And so our love is more deeply proclaimed, not in the words that we say or the things that we affirm, but in how we live our lives. I believe this is what Jesus is telling this lawyer. And perhaps if we loved in a way that married righteousness and justice, we would see and experience God's goodness as God intended for us to experience. And the overarching thrust Uh, of the Bible, at least one of them, is the underlying theme that in every single word of Scripture is that love is the only force that is powerful enough to transform or to heal or to bring new life where death seems to be the only logical outcome. And so I want us to get away from the big picture for a little bit and maybe take it to a smaller and more focused um, experience. I want us to embrace Jesus' words with our own body, in our own hearts and in our ears and the hands that have been with us and the, um, the lives that we live. Think of the notorious sinner in your life, be it a politician or a family member, a friend or a coworker, someone who is difficult to love and say, are they really that different from you if they just manifest this destruction in a different way? What's their story, and is their story not as sacred as your own? Jesus is given a choice to pick the greatest commandment, the goat. And the text says that Jesus says two commandments, but it 
looks like three. The first and the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor. And the third is that how you love your neighbor is to come from how you love yourself. Or perhaps how you love your neighbor is derived from how you love yourself. And considering any type of practical application of the law, Jesus does not give three standalone commandments. He gives one that is triune in nature. Just as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, yet one triune God, love for God, love for neighbor, and love for self are three distinct commitments, yet intrinsically they are the same. The divine law of love is triune at its core. And if there's ever been a proclamation of our deepest theological convictions, it's how we live and how we embrace love for God, love for neighbor, and love for our own selves. How we live is often more revealing about what we believe in truth than the things that we proclaim with our lips. And the most difficult part of Jesus' response to the lawyer might be that the person in this world who is the hardest to love just might be myself. Because I know myself better than anyone else, or so I think. And so how can a faulty love of self manifest into a holistic love for neighbor or a complete love for God? I've learned, if, if, if I've learned anything from my neighbor, it's, uh, it's that love is often conditional. That if you do this, the society will reject you or embrace you. And so therefore, reward and, 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 and reprove and all the things. And so if love is this conditional idea or, or concept, then I've also had to combat the idea that maybe God's love is somehow conditional as well. So on the flip side, the conditions that I place upon my neighbor for them to earn my love, for them to earn their dignity as being created in the image of God, it's a reflection of the ways in which I love myself. These are the same conditions that I place upon myself. The destruction is that I need to earn my own love, that I need to earn the love from my neighbor and that I need to earn love from God. And so I ask, what are the conditions that we negotiate? These are different for every single one of us. But I think the ultimate goal is that we would earn love. And so we see the call to righteousness and justice oftentimes as a distaste and hatred for the other side. To see fellow human beings as obstacles that need to be moved rather than as people who need healing. And the sheer breadth of the divine law of love is that obedience to it is a lifelong journey. And our minds are enmeshed in all of this. Because if love for myself is dictated by how pure my thoughts can be, then I'll find it incredibly difficult to love myself or my neighbor when we contemplate evil things or act upon or speak in evil ways. If love for myself is dictated by how intelligent or how articulate I can be, then love for my neighbor, who is not as articulate or intelligent, will be very difficult for me. Our bodies are also enmeshed in all of this. If I love myself because of the ways in which I'm perfectly shaped or how pure my body or my history is, 
then loving my neighbor or myself will be extremely difficult when I don't meet the standards of perfection, when my body doesn't look like the image I'm supposed to uphold, or if my body doesn't uphold the history that it's supposed to have. If I love myself, and, uh, or if my love for myself is often dictated by what I'm capable of doing, the things that I can achieve and the things that I can accomplish, then love for my neighbor will also be dictated by what they can accomplish and what they can achieve. Our souls are also enmeshed in all of this. If love for myself comes from a perception of being God's chosen one or one of God's favorites, then loving myself and my neighbor will be extremely difficult when I don't see that God is at work in both of us or all of us. If love for myself comes from being in one accord with God, then loving my neighbor or myself will be extremely difficult when I don't feel a close connection to the divine regardless of how close the divine actually is. And so I'm not preaching a message that everything goes and that we should be as we are and just accept everything in the world as it is. Rather, I'm affirming that God created a good world that is capable of goodness and healing and wholeness. Love for self looks different in different seasons. It might look like accountability while also looking like grace. It might look like embracing while also rejecting. It might look like working while also resting. And sometimes I think self-love looks like drinking a cup of water. The message that I'm preaching is that love is the only force powerful enough to transform, to heal, and to bring new life abundantly where death is the only logical outcome. The law in the Hebrew Bible, all 613 of them, as well as the divine law that Jesus lays down in Matthew 22 is this, that love leads to righteousness, that it leads to justice. Love leads to action and solidarity. But the good news is that love is initiated, and I'm going to word, uh, borrow words from Matthias this morning who shared that his father said, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And do it first. And Matthias went on to say, this is the beauty of the incarnation. That Jesus did it first. That Jesus, in, in, in uh, the body and the divine and the human and all this, Jesus does it first. Perfectly loving neighbor, loving God, and loving self. The Christian faith is an experience that is embodied, and until we wrestle with Jesus as both David, the son of David and David's Lord, we will forever struggle to wrestle with what salvation looks like in our humanity. We are working out this salvation in our humanity, and it is not, it's not a beautiful, perfected path. There's a lot of struggle. And so the good news is that God's love, this is what transforms us to live the dangerous life that we are called to in Matthew 22, that to love God, to love neighbor, and to love self is to do so with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our soul. This is the word of the Lord.